dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad if I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your way. Hello, and it's almost Halloween, and I decided to have some true crime for Halloween. And it's true crime with a twist. And you can hear all the crime and passion you want. Here next on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please, drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. When I was just a little baby boy, my mama used to tell me these crazy things. She used to tell me my daddy was an evil man. She used to tell me he hated me. But then I got a little bit older and I realized she was the crazy one. But there was nothing I could do or say to try to change it because that's just the way she was. They said I can't rap about being broke no more. They say I can't rap about no more. Ah! You think I won't choke no till the vocal cords don't work in the throat no more? Ah! These are thinking I'm playing, thinking I'm saying this because I'm thinking it just to be saying it. Ah! Put your hands down, bitch. I ain't gonna shoot. I'm gonna pull you to this and put it through you. Ah! Shut up. It causing too much chaos. Just bend over and take it like a Okay, ma? Oh, now he's his own mother abusing a whore. And we gave him the Rolling Stone cover? You goddamn right, bitch. And I was too late. I'm triple platinum and tragedies happen in two states. I invented violence, you vile venomous, vile little bitches, bang. Bing, bing, bing. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As I promised you today for Halloween, some true crime. And uh, I have an author of a book. Dewey Reynolds, The Two Shades of Vice, and Dewey has a very interesting story. And Dewey, my first question to you as I welcome to the sh- welcome you to the show, how are you doing? I am great. How are you, sir? Okay. My first question is, what was unique about your parents? Well, what makes it kind of like, I guess you can say, not well balanced or unorthodox was the fact that they were an interracial couple who met around 1959. And during that time period, you know, of course, you know, there were 17 states in Missouri that had the uh, anti-misogenation laws in in, in effect. And Missouri was one of them. Mm -hmm. And what makes their story real unique, not only were they an interracial couple, because my father, he was a white man. My mother was a black woman. And they were heavily involved in, in, in crime, in vice together, in crime. And they pretty much just had that I do as I please attitude. I, I, I'm, I'm fearless. 
I will come up against anyone that challenges me. And even if it, it may um, threaten my life, we're going to be together as an interracial couple, and we're going to get involved in a lot of serious vice together. So it's a very, very unique story, something different. And I've done a lot of research, and me personally, I've never even heard of a story like this before. Okay. Well, I grew up on the um, east side of the state of Missouri, but I'm well-versed in the um, the the mixed race laws uh, that state could have. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, what, what are you talking about is nothing new to me. Uh, oh, okay. Before we get into the, the uh, life and crime of your parents, uh, what type of childhood did you have? Well, um, to kind of like uh, briefly walk you through uh, what, what had happened was um, my parents, because of their criminal lifestyle, because they were so heavily involved in vice and I was a baby in one of their body houses, um, I was put in foster care. I became a ward of the state at six months old because of the fact that their parental rights were terminated because of their very, you know, uh, loose lifestyle because of the fact that they were not fit to be parents. So my childhood, my first almost 16 years of my life was, was uh, spent in foster care because of the fact that, like I said, both of my parents were hardened criminals and they couldn't care care for me. So they had to abandon me, and that's what that's what exactly what happened. So my childhood and on into my uh, teens and all that was spent in foster care. Well, uh, again, before we get into the <laughs> your parents' crime, um, being in foster care, how did you uh, you know overcome that to the point that you're uh, a published author and you have other uh, well rounded things about yourself yeah well having researched my parents background and knew about the life that they led and everything i affirmed to myself at a very young age that i didn't want to go that same route now now the foster home i grew up in was i must admit it was very abusive and uh having known that you know parents who who you know ran off and left me and everything um I was just, you know, like I said, I affirmed to myself that I want to really do something with my life. I want, I don't want to end up in jail like my parents were. And, uh, you know, I want to try to go to school and get an education and learn some things and maybe do something, you know, with my life and be productive in society and everything. So, you know, I, I always had a love for reading and writing and being creative and everything. So uh, later on, I, I kind of felt, you know, I could try my hands at being an author and having good material, you know, really helps out a lot. So when I, when I, when I decided to uh, go back and find some records about my stay in the foster home, it talked about, you know, different um, episodes or different incidents that my parents were hardened criminals. So I decided to investigate further. And after years of, of doing research into their background, that's when I decided to, to write a book and, Go on, write other material too. So, yeah, definitely uh, creativity is definitely one of my fortes. Uh, were there any other siblings? Yes, I had. 
I have an older sister and an older brother. My sister and I are three and a half years apart. And my brother, we're, I'd say, close to seven years apart. And they also had to go into foster care, too, because of the criminalistic lifestyle that, that, that our parents had. And uh, so, yeah, I, I do have an older uh, sister and an older brother. And things turn out okay for them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That things, you know, uh, they went on to, I would say, pretty much do well, well in life. And uh, right. of course, they, yeah, my sister lives in Omaha. My brother lives in Arkansas. So, yeah, they've gone on to do pretty good, I'd say. Was there uh, somebody else in your life that kind of helped keep you on the straight and narrow or uh, get you through, you know, yeah. grade school and high school and maybe yeah, college? I mean, there, fortunately, there were like, people in the neighborhood, people, you know, at school, you know, like some teachers and some church, you know, people involved in church that pretty much, you know, became like, you know, like guidance people that would guide me and give me good advice and try to keep me on, on the straight and narrow and stay out of trouble, stay off of drugs, uh, don't roam the streets, you know, don't, don't try not to get into fights and all that. So definitely I, I did, I, I was fortunate to have a few people that would mentor me you know, along the way while I was growing up, you know, in my uh, younger years. Did you have any type of relationship with your parents? Well, um, okay, here's, here's the thing. My father was 26 years older than my mother. He, I was born in 1964. My father was born in 1905. My mother was born in 1931. I met my father a month before he died. He died at the age of 72 in 1978. And I got to talk to him briefly. I got to see him before he died. Mm-hmm. But, but my mother and I, later on down the line, we would, you know, I would meet up with her and we would we would uh, pretty much forge a good relationship. And she was one of the ones who would talk about their life as, as, as an interracial couple involved in some serious vice. And she would tell me some stories that I would consider really almost like mind blowing about their life together and, you know, out on the streets and, you know, coming up against some of the most dangerous, notorious criminals here in Kansas City that you could mention. So, yeah, me and my mother, my biological mother, we we got to know each other and we formed a bond. And uh, it was like that up until she died in 1999. That's interesting. Yes. uh, And I asked that because I was just wondering, uh, was there information pulled from either one of them that helped write this book? Oh yeah, absolutely. What, what really uh, kicked things into gear for me was, like I said, I went to the division of family services in downtown Kansas city and my Lord, they, they had like many, many pages uh, explaining my stay in the foster home, you know, all the events that took place that I had forgotten about it kind of like sprung up a few memories, but it, but it mentioned that, you know, my mother and father were criminals and they, you know, and they mentioned briefly some of the crimes that they were, you know, involved in. So I decided to, to uh, research further. So I go over to the Kansas, the headquarters for the Kansas City Police Department and they gave me just countless pages of police records. And then also, you know, uh, both of their criminal rap sheets. And it, I mean, it, it, it just really blew me away to, to, to read about all the over the years, all the crimes that they were involved in and some of the seedy characters that they were involved with. And, and, and what really, really almost floored me was 
in in, in a couple of police uh, uh, reports on my father, a couple of uh, well-known, you know, uh, Italian gangsters were mentioned. So he did have relations with with some of the most notorious gangsters in Kansas City, and and a couple of them names I, I recognized very very clearly. I was like, wow. So it, it I just I just found it to be a fascinating story, and I didn't know all this during the whole time I was growing up in the foster home, but I would later learn all these things like. Wow, he was involved with some heavyweights in, in in the business of crime. Okay, let's get let's get back to your parents. Um, how did they meet, especially with that big of a gap? And and part of this begs the question: Was there um, was their relationship lovingly, or was it abusive? Well, they they actually fell in love with one another. They became you know, after they decided to, of course, their parental rights were, were, were terminated where they couldn't have any they had children because he had children from a, a prior relationship before he met my mother. But um, the way that they met was my mother was on the streets and uh, she was out there involved in a little bit of everything. And, you know, and uh, she was out there soliciting as far as like prostitution is concerned. And uh, my father had been had been watching her very closely while she was out there because the prostitution racket was like something he was heavily involved in. And, and one may ask, well, how do you know these things? I say, well, I'll tell you how I know. It's mentioned in police reports. And he talks about, you know, him being a pimp or you know, a procurer, as they, they mentioned in, the, you know, in more layman's terms in the police reports and the women that, you know, they were working for him on the streets. And he, he I, I think he saw her as a bright prospect as far as like someone they could run, you know, his little his good time body house with prostitution and drugs and liquor and cigarettes and gambling, et cetera. So she got arrested. And what he did was he went and, and bailed her out of jail. And he, he came to her because she told me this herself. He came to her with a proposition. OK, I got like four, five girls on the streets for me. And I was wondering if you could, you know, kind of like be the madam at the house, you know, when the trips come and, you know, the guys come and want to spend their money, you know, you can set them up with dates with the women and everything, you know, you like the madam now, and then you can probably convince them to maybe buy some drugs or buy some cigarettes or some liquor, which, which was some of the contraband that my father had stored in the house, you know, not only just for prostitution, but he could also, you know, sell these these goods and you know commodities to to the the guys that would come and be with the prostitutes at the house. So, then it begs a question that mm-hmm. everybody's waiting for me to ask: mm-hmm. What type of crime was your parents into beyond prostitution? Wow. Well, well, I'm gonna tell you this: a- after having studying the police reports and the, and the criminal rap sheets, they were into everything. I mean, they were into like uh, prostitution, drug trafficking, uh, soliciting bootleg whiskey, contraband cigarettes, uh, gambling. I mean, petty larceny, burglary. And my father, when I when I carefully reviewed his criminal rap sheet, he had 57 criminal convictions spanning for over 20 something years. And uh, what like I said, one of the main rackets that he was into was prostitution. And, and and the police report had said that he is a known procurer, which he was known to the police as a pimp, as a guy who, who had women soliciting prostitution on the streets for him. And this is all in police reports. This is not just hearsay and 
some stories that you know concocted you know out of out of somebody's fantasy these are really true live stories that are backed up by documentation and uh so to answer your question they were into you name it i mean it was just any way that they could hustle and make money they did it and and then also my father was a hijacker he he was tipped off you know with some of those irish and italian gangsters in kansas city about trucks coming into kansas city with whiskey and beer and cigarettes and frozen meats and sometimes them guys would hijack them trucks and they would steal all the goods off of them and my father was taking that some of that stuff and putting it into his body house so it uh was one of the italian gangsters go by the name of capone <laughs> wow it's, it's funny <laughs> funny you mention that because first of all from from you know because i consider myself somewhat myself somewhat of an aficionado of, of organized crime because I've read umpteen books and seen stories and say I, I personally knew a couple of gangsters here in Kansas City when I, in my younger days but uh but 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 let me just say this real briefly Al Capone did have ties to Kansas City he, yes that's, he, that's why I yeah asked. he had criminal co- he had mafia mafioso colleagues here in Kansas City because he was known to like hide out in Kansas City uh like St. Paul, Minnesota, and some other mid, yeah. other Midwestern locations. So right, but you know what? Let me tell you this too briefly. Uh, I come to find out that on, uh, on there's a well-known strip here in Kansas City, and you may be familiar. It's called Armor Armor Boulevard. They have a lot of uh, now they, they're all apartments and condominiums and such nowadays. But back in the 30s and 40s, they were they were hotels, and you could tell from the exterior of, of these buildings that they were hotel the way they were built mm-hmm. but there's there's one called the bellary there on armor boulevard and from 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 what historians here in kansas city have said that al capone once came to kansas city and hosted a big party there for his gangster colleagues uh so it sounds like your dad was in and out of uh jail or prison i take it yeah well let me let me <clears throat> excuse me let me tell you this. Having reviewed his criminal rap sheet, he did prison time in five different states, which is California, Arizona, Missouri, Texas, and Illinois. Okay, so he basically went <laughs> Route 66. Oh, yeah, he, he got around. I mean, yeah. having, having read his story and, his, like I said, his criminal background, he truly got around. So... <clears throat> Being that they were hanging with some of the, uh, or rubbing elbows with some of the creme la creme, de la creme of uh, crime of the time, mm-hmm. how was your mother accepted by the uh, the whites of the uh, crime families and whatnot? Well, because of him, I guess I guess he was looked upon as like her protector and. Uh, of course, she was she was making money not only for him, but she was making money with him. And I believe because of the fact that they were involved in each other, they knew that uh, the bottom line to them was money. I mean, they I I don't think they cared too much about you know you know someone being involved in an interracial union or anything, and because it didn't really put a damper on what they were doing. But I don't think they really cared one way or another. Cause like I said. A couple of those Italian gangsters, from what, even from what she told me too, that you know they had a strong 
rapport with each other. And uh, they made money together because, because see, here, here's the deal. Whether you, whether you were in Kansas City, Detroit, Chicago, Miami, you know, New Orleans or New York or whatever, if you made money in vice, and especially if the money was pretty substantial, you had to kick back part of your vice proceeds to, to those Italians. And if you didn't, they would come and see you. And you were either intimidated, beaten, or killed. My father was no different. He kicked part, part of his money back to them guys. He had to. I mean, anybody, you had pimps that would, had women on the streets. You had guys involved in drug trafficking. or You had those involved in fencing stolen goods, and the money was real, real good. You had no other choice but to kick part of your proceeds back to them. Did that, did that include the law at the time, the uh, uh, well, well, justice system? Oh, absolutely, because because of the fact that anybody who knows, whether, like I said, again, whether it was Kansas City or anywhere else in the country where, 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 where organized crime was pretty strong, um, we all know cops was paid off, judges were paid off, you know, police captains and et cetera. They told you that in The Godfather, you know. Mm-hmm. So Kansas City was no different. Uh, like, the reigning vice lord or the reigning crime family that, that, that had ran the, the mob for many years at Kansas City were the, were the Savellas, were Nick Savella and his brother Cork Savella, Corky Savella. And uh, they, like I said, it was known that they, they were paying off everybody. They were paying off uh, judges and politicians, and they were paying off police captains, and et cetera, et cetera, because they had the money and the means to do it. Was... Uh... And I take it also your mother was in and out of prison? Oh, yeah. She she also, I'm, I'm telling you, my father had 57 criminal convictions, which ranged from strong-arm robbery, uh, compulsory prostitution, rationing gas coupons during World War II, uh, burglary and larceny, uh, suspicion of murder, drug trial. Oh, it, it went up. She was on the, she had like maybe... 30-something criminal convictions during her, her time out there in a life of crime. So were they ever um, brought up on murder charges? No, she wasn't, but they tried to bring him up on murder charges a couple of times. Like they like say, it was more so suspicion of murder, which which we know they're, they're suspecting you were involved in the murder, but they don't, have, they don't have the tangible proof or they don't have the evidence to prove that you were either involved or you actually committed the murder yourself. But that's mentioned in, in one of, you know, on, on his uh, criminal rap sheet, suspicion of murder. But but, but all the crimes he committed in, in the five different states and, and elsewhere, you know, it tells you what he was convicted of and why he went and did that prison time in, in those different locations. Well, with that span of time of committing crime and... Um... Is there a reason why he was wasn't locked away for good? That's a good question. I, you know, I, I asked that question before I even asked my mother that, because I was like, I almost became an interviewer because I was so curious about so many different things. But I don't think he ever did anything that would put him away for life. Like, for instance, like let's say they did prove he murdered a, a couple of people or whatever. And they, okay, well we can put, give him life without parole. He'll never see the outside, but a lot of the crimes he committed, he did his time, got out, went right back to the streets. Because even before I got to the police headquarters and got all, all the police records and got his criminal rap sheet, some of those records that I got from the Division of Family Services said 
when they was mentioning some of the crimes that he he was involved with, that it said in one in the narrative there in in in, in one of the uh, records from the uh, family services said that no known occupation has ever been shown for this subject. We're simply saying he never worked a legitimate job a day in his life. Right. He was just a life lifelong uh, criminal. Exactly. <laughs> Career so, criminal. Right. So I already asked you about your parents' relationship as far as how uh, those in crime with them mm-hmm. looked at them. Now, mm-hmm. I also know growing up in the state of Missouri, um, especially on the western side of the state of Missouri, there is mm-hmm. was tons of white supremacists, and maybe still is. Oh, um, yes. How did they navigate through that? Well, as I mentioned in my book, uh, I remember my mom, my mom told me a story um, that someone, because they, 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 their body house, you know, which was all the, the, the criminal stuff going on, someone threw, threw a bottle through, through the window, and inside the bottle, it was like one of them old Coca-Cola bottles from way back when, and there was a note inside the bottle that used the N-word, of mm-hmm. course, more like to describe my mother, and 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 they and in the note and in the note there was a threat made that if they didn't move or if they didn't discontinue their interracial relationship they both was going to end up dead. So they they pretty much had gotten death threats and then cops you know as far as like racist cops. I remember, I remember my mom told me a story where uh, a cop just walked into their house. He knew what they were doing, but. They was able to disguise it when they knew that cop was coming up to the door and he just walked in the house and said that he looked at her and pointed across the room at my father and said, is that your white pimp right there? And I was like, wow. But as far as like white supremacist groups and, you know, Ku Klux Klan, because I know, I don't know what what the landscape is like nowadays, but I remember she was telling me there was a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan probably right at 30 or less miles outside of Kansas City. And they almost had a run-in with those people. And uh, oh yeah, they. I would. I would. I think it would be fair to say that they caught hell back then, not only as just an interracial couple, but an interracial couple is out there doing all kind of bites together. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So, as so we're, but they weren't ever like grabbed by the clan or anything like that and threatened uh, physically or beaten or no no but they from what from what she told me they had a brush they almost had a had a brush with him when they traveled somewhere on that because his parents lived like on a farm not too far outside kansas city probably about 60 70 miles outside of kc and uh they were traveling at nighttime and i think they were being followed by a car full of full of white men. I remember she was telling me that, and she said she strongly believed that they were clans. And uh, and believe me, she said my father put the pedal to the metal. He like got out of Dodge and hurry up, got back, got within the city limits, and was able to you know avoid. Because had they caught up with them or, or was able to maybe ambush them or whatever, they probably they probably would end up killed. Who knows? Right. Yeah, they've had a brush with stuff like that before. Did you uh did your parents have any uh type of familiar or family relationship with 
their parents or did their parents kind of just hand, you know, do the hands off thing? Well, I mean, okay. First is like my, my dad, my father. Now I want to say from what I was told by other family members on that side of the family, that he grew up in a very good loving home, but he somehow he went astray. And, um, as far as my mom is concerned, I understand that her father was a minister and, uh, I'm thinking her home life may have been fairly decent, but I don't know. I, re I really never really got into, you know, knowing what their upbringing was like and what kind of home life they had or what kind of family life they had as they were growing up. Cause I always wondered how did they end up being the people that they were mm -hmm. as far as like these hardened criminals, what, what kind of home life did they have? What kind of, how did their parents raise them and all that? It, that always was a mystery to me. Was there any, any notations or signs or any, did your mother tell you anything about how her parents felt her being in a mixed relationship? Yeah. About what now? About being in a mixed relationship or marriage and maybe even how his parents felt about it. Well, I don't really, I can tell you this. I don't really know how her parents felt about it. But from what I understand from, from members on, on my dad's side of the family, his side, that his parents were very dissenting. They, they were very disapproving of, of uh, interracial. And uh, now I believe that uh, to some degree, I don't believe on a full scale or, or, or 100%, but I do believe he was disowned by a lot of family members for being involved in the interracial. Because prior to, to meeting my mom, he was married to two white women. And now he ends up with this black woman and, and, and they out here doing all kind of crime together. And when his family finds out, because he came from a family of 11 children, it was seven girls and four boys. And they were the very much clean cut church going law abiding type of family. And for him, I, I don't know if it's fair to say he was necessarily truly the black sheep in the family, but um, he was to, to my knowledge, was disowned by a lot of family members because him getting involved in an interracial relationship back then. Now, during that period in Kansas City, it was basically just like Harlem, from what I from what I understand and have learned from um, listening to Negro League baseball players talk about Kansas City. They talked about mm -hmm. the jazz scene, and they talked about the baseball scene. Was your parents also into all that that was going on at the time? I, I think it'd be fair to say that they were involved in a roundabout way. Because like I said, my dad's born in 1905. My mother's born in 1931. And they I, I think they were out there at a time in Kansas City history where, as you can say, the good times rolled. You know, just like you, you mentioned Harlem. And the Harlem Renaissance and the jazz clubs and the, because Kansas City at one time, you know, from what people know, the history of this city is it was a wide open town, and but it, but I will, as you like you're from Missouri, and I'm pretty sure you you've heard stories or you know from information that that at one time Kansas City was a big gangster town, right. you know, yes, oh yeah, there's some big time gangsters here, and uh, they were, I mean, but during their time out there in the streets, you know, in, in their life of crime. Yeah, they, they pretty much were kind of like in the thick of things. 
So did your mother say that they were just they just like to be thrill seekers or they just like they just like the rush they got committing crime and, and uh being on the edge? Yeah, exactly. She did tell me that. She 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 just said that they they both live what you call dangerously on the edge and they just were thrill seekers and they got an adrenaline rush from you know being able to evade certain people i mean you got the law law enforcement that's watching you real close you've got other criminals out there other like like your pimps and your strong arm robbers and and your your bootleggers and your drug traffickers and your whoever whoever hijackers you name it and uh it, she from what she she said it in her own in her own way or in, you know she described it in such a way that you know um they they just got a rush out of that life and uh now what can i do next and i i can avoid it and be able to say oh yeah i did this and nothing happened to me let me move on let me graduate to something else and try this and then i think i'll beat that and then i'll move on to something else Did they ever speak about being any uh, having or uh, being near death as their exports kept uh, growing? Wow, that's a very good question. Uh, I don't think my mother ever told me, because like I said, I only met my father one time, that was a month before he died, rest in peace. But uh, I don't think they never had like what you call a very serious uh, brush with death. Like I said, they had gotten death threats. You know, they, they definitely got that. But as far as like being in a real, true life or death situation, I don't think they ever really, and if they did, she, did, she didn't really, you know, uh, explain it to me or tell me about it. But no, I don't think so. So they, they weren't in a car. Because as we talk, what I see in my head is uh, some of the scenes from Bonnie and Clyde where they're... Uh, being chased by the law or people they did wrong and there would be shootouts. Were there even any talks of shootouts or anything like that? No, uh, there weren't really any talks of shootouts or anything. Like I said, the worst, one of the worst case scenarios, like I said, when someone threw the bottle through the window and had the, the note in there threatening to kill both of them, if they didn't discontinue their life and discontinue, you know, uh, you know them being involved, you know, in a, in an interracial relationship. Cause that was, as you, as you already know, John, that was that was extremely taboo, and it was right. against the law. It, yes. was, it was it was it was very much against the law for interracial to be involved in relations and and to cohabitate and and have sexual relations. So, I mean, even even despite all that, I mean, they just they just were to me they were they were fearless. They, I mean, even before they came together, they knew the odds that they will be up against being together as criminals and as an interracial couple. So yeah, they, they just, I mean, they, to me, I, I, I find it amazing how they just was able to survive and make it through that because almost, that's almost like an automatic death sentence to, to really do the things that they did and mm -hmm. live through it and be able to talk about it. So did, did, did your parents remain married until his death? Or... They sure they sure did. They would only get married um, when they when they find okay. What what really 
shut them down for good and 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 made them want to leave leave a life of crime behind and leave the streets behind was vice kicked in on them. My mother, she's another story she told me. Vice, the vice uh, department, vice squad or whatever with the Kansas City Police Department kicked in on them, and they found drugs. They found con- stolen contraband cigarettes from one of the trucks they had hijacked. They found, um, you know, uh, bootleg whiskey that he had been selling. And then, you know, they actually busted, like, maybe two of his girls upstairs with the tricks and everything. So they had enough to put them in jail for it. And they ended up doing time for that. How much time, the police report didn't say. But when the vice squad kicked in on them and, and had all that evidence against them to bring into court, and to prove everything, all the crimes that they were involved in, the vice were involved in, they both, you know, served time for a little while. And then when they got out, they came back together and they went on to get married and I guess so-called live live somewhat of a quiet life. And where did that take? Was that in Kansas City also? Yes, that was in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you said you had one conversation with your father. How did that come about and how was it? Well, he was dying, and my mother felt as though, you know, I should be able to see him and, and talk to him before he dies because I'd never met him in my life. So my foster mother, so I get out of school one day, my foster mother tells me, okay, well, your, your biological father, you know, he's dying. He ain't got much time. And your mother wants, you know, she's requesting for you to see him. And, uh, of course, he, you know, he uh, was at home and everything, and, uh he had, you know, the tubes in him and there, all that. He was very, very sick. And uh, you could almost see death on his face. And I just walked up and I shook his hand, and, you know, and I, I said, well, you know, my name is Dewey and, uh, you know, I'm your son. And how are you? Like, he could barely talk, but he was able to talk well enough for me to understand him. And uh, he said, it's so good to meet you. I, you know, I, I love you, son, and all that. And and then I said, okay, and I'm just, we just sitting there just staring at one another, you know, like studying one another, because like I said, this is really my dad, and this is the first and only time that I get to meet him. And probably about maybe a month later, my foster mother tells me he had died. So that pretty much was, was that after that. So what age were you? I was 13. I know he was, he was 72 when he died. I was age 13 when I first met him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, did you attend his funeral or? No, I wasn't able to, um, cause from what my mother, my foster mother told me that almost they buried him so fast after he died, my mother just hurried up and just, I don't know what her reasons was or why that was so, but I was told that she had buried him like right away and really a whole lot of family members on his side never got to, you know, come and pay their respects and everything because he was just buried, like, ever so quickly. So I really don't know the, the true story behind that. So, not, no, I wasn't able to, to attend his funeral. So, and I don't, uh, I don't know if you want to diverge any names. Uh, were there any, and I brought up the name uh, Capone. Were there any mm-hmm. other people famous uh criminals that they may have rubbed elbows with oh yeah i mean it really i know you said you, you use that word divulge but 
But you know, them, them people are long gone. Their children are long gone. They may have grandchildren or great-grandchildren still running around. Well, yeah, I mean, just to name a few, I mean, like I said, the Sabellas, uh, the, the Comisanos, the Spiros. Um, you had Italians that he he rubbed shoulders with, like the Indelicados. I mean, you know, um, who else? Like um, the uh, Brand, yeah, the Brancados, who still have, you know, family running around here. You got the Negros, who still got family running around. And, yeah, I mean, I mean, the list just goes on. And uh, like I said, some of those names are mentioned in the police reports. So that right there told me that he had some type of alliance with these people because of, because of his criminal lifestyle. So if you were into crying the way he was, you couldn't help but somewhat run in the same circles as those, as those people. That's, um, that's interesting in the sense that your, your parents kind of stayed at a certain level of crime Without, um, was that just because they didn't want to get get into more dangerous things, or, or um... well, they they first of all they knew how dangerous the streets were. They knew what kind of criminal element was out there, and they were they knew they weren't ignorant to the fact that there were there were criminals out there that would kill you just as sure as look at you, you know. But you know, I think they I think they truly wanted to like bring it up a notch or two, if you will, in their criminal lifestyle. But just like anything else in life, John, there's competition. And of course, I, I really mentioned that in my book, Two Shades of Vice, that, you know, they were faced with a lot of competition. Everybody's trying to grab their share. But a lot of, one thing I've learned about a lot of criminals is no matter what ethnic, the ethnic background they come from, they're always looking for that big payoff. And, and they will really net them Big, big money. Okay, great example. Being out, I've read and studied organized crime because my father was, was, was a gangster in his own way. He was Al Capone John Gotti. Okay, but good example. Bootleggings, we all know, made Al Capone extremely wealthy, extremely rich during Prohibition. Uh, Lucky Luciano up there in New York, prostitution made him very rich, you know, shaking down the madams and pimps and the growls up there. Then you look at... Um, Carlo Gambino, his, he made his wealth through stealing gas ration coupons. He stole huge volumes. He broke into a bank and stole huge volumes of gas ration coupons. And, and they, were, they were saying that in one cell alone, it netted him over $2 million. We're talking like in the 1940s. So I believe that my father and maybe my mother, but definitely my father, I think he, he was pretty much looking for that 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 big payoff or something that would really net him big big money but 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 collectively all the things that he was involved in he made some pretty i would say beyond decent he made good money but he never got that huge payoff that a lot of them gangsters are looking for what type of when he died what type of life was he le uh living pretty meager or well, his, his health had failed him so bad because we're, we're talking about a guy that he smoked in excess, he drunk in excess. And, and then when you, when, you, when you live the kind of life that he lived, jumping around all over the place, in and out of the prison system all the time, that right there, to me, takes its toll on your health. So in his later years, his health just failed him more and more. And just as time went on, he became a very sickly man. 
So he really couldn't do much. Was the, uh, I guess what I was trying to get to, because you were talking about how some families, fi- you know, did well in the crime game. Did your, did your, parents die poor or were they uh, okay? Were they- yeah, yeah. Well, to be honest with you, I think it's fair to say they did die poor because whatever money they made in vice or money they made, you know, they spent it. And I mean, they, they, they lived in a pretty decent home. They had nice, decent furnishing furnishings up in there. You know, he had a decent car. Um, she never did drive. She never drove in her life, but I mean, yeah, I mean, but to, but to be honest with you, to answer but yeah, it, it's fair to say they did die poor, yeah. And did this, uh, beyond the fact that, as you stated earlier, you don't, you grew up saying, I'm not living that life, mm-hmm. um, did it have any other lasting effects on you? Was there uh, depression, anxiety, or any other things that that you could think were caused by their lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, just to know that you, I was not raised by, by, you know, my parents, you know, my biological parents and everything. And just to know that I was abandoned at six months old. And for many years, I didn't know who my mother and father was. And, um, you know, and, and, and not getting the love that the kids in the neighborhood and at school and at church were getting from their real parents. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of feels as though, you've been neglected or you don't feel love, you don't feel wanted, you know, and all that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of went through, went through that depression stage or went through that, you know, feeling as though I'm not loved the way other kids are loved and everything. So definitely. So how did you overcome that? Well, I mean, I think in life, I speak for myself and other people, you just have to have, find an outlet. You know, and, and, and I love to read. I love to be creative. You know, I, I find uh, extracurricular activity, things that, you know, uh, that are not self-destructive. So, yeah, I would say that's one of the, the biggest ways I overcame that. And uh, you wrote this book. Why? What convinced you that you should write a book about your parents and their exploits? Yeah. Well, like I said earlier, uh, John, it having done all that research into their backgrounds over the years and and, and another thing that, that, that really really blew me away was when i was getting the police reports and criminal rap sheets as part of my research material they actually gave me a photo actually a few photos of my mother and father mug shots and when matter of fact there's an actual photo i have in my book when when vice had kicked in on them and arrested both of them and they're standing side by side in this police, you know, full body length and everything. And then, of course, you know, the mug shots of the, uh, from the neck up and all that with the numbers and the, the way they, they do. And uh, having all this this research material and, and finding it to be a very unique story, story I've never heard of myself. And just to know there was, you know, th- this story is something that, I believe the public will be interested in. I mean, because it it tells so many stories of violence and sex and profanity and love and hate and et cetera. And then like, for instance, like, um, like in the book, you know, there are some things that's mentioned in the book that I cannot really like maybe 
come straight out and discuss with you here in this interview. But I mean, as far as like the sex and the language and the violence, you know, that's all mentioned in the book. And that's why I strongly recommend that people read the book to kind of get some teeth into your bite. And, you know, and you won't, and so I'm telling you this story through this interview, but in the book, I feel as though you won't miss one iota of the entire story. And it, it goes deeply into detail. The book has photos. It has the, the, the rap sheets in there to let you see what they did. You know, some of them, too many pages of that, but I put a few of them in the book. And um, it's just well-written and well-researched. And I just decided, you know, this is a story that needs to be told. And that's exactly what I, the resolve that I came to after I had gathered all my research material and studied, you know, the material real well. And I, I just felt overall, it would make just a really outstanding story. In the last couple of minutes that we have, Dewey, uh, mm -hmm. uh, can you, uh, or is there anything further you uh, that I didn't touch that maybe you want to touch about your parents or, the, or this story? Well, I, I think I've covered everything that, that we 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 need to cover or should have uh, covered. And because uh, you you asked some very good questions, you really did. I thought that was really cool. And uh, like I said, kind of get into the meat of the story and give you like give your your listener your listening audience and whoever you know a, a good overview of who my mom and dad were and what they were about and you know. The like every story has a beginning, a middle, and the end. And I'm hoping during this interview, you know, I gave you the beginning of the story, the middle of the story, and the ending of the story, and didn't give away too much. So that's why I say I, I would recommend, strongly recommend that that whoever can and and listening to this interview will, will read the book because I believe they'll get so much out of it. So yeah, we I feel as though John, we've covered everything okay. within this period of time. Well, again, the book is called. Two Shades of Vice, and uh, Dewey, where can they get uh, your book, and if they have further questions, or is there a way to contact you? Well, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, they can also leave, uh, you know, they can go to Amazon and everything, and, uh, of course, they can go to my email. My email is there at, at my uh, Facebook uh, profile. Uh the book can be purchased at uh, Amazon.com. It's in uh, ebook. It's also in soft cover. And um, and I just wanted to say I was uh, proud to say uh, that Kirkus Reviews said the author, who is myself, mm -hmm. has skillfully captured the characters and everything. So there are some good reviews out there at Amazon. Some very good reviews, and you can read. Your listening audience and whoever else you know beyond this interview can read read the uh, interview. I mean the uh, the reviews there on Amazon.com. But yeah, the book is available at Amazon.com. You can get it in ebook. We get it in soft cover, and it's really really a great story, and it'll take you on a journey like you've never been before. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Dewey, and I appreciate your time. And uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Not not a problem. And this has been Dewey Reynolds, and uh, you also can reach him at DeweyReynoldsBooks.com, or at least buy the book from there. And uh, I will also post your, your email uh, address if people want to reach out to you. I want to thank you again, and uh, have a good day, sir. 
You do the same. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please, Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Again, I want to thank uh, today's guest, Dewey Reynolds. Uh, his book is Two Shades of Vice, about his parents who were an interracial couple uh, in Kansas City during the uh, 50s and 60s, committing crimes and running a prostitution house. Again, thank you for listening. Uh, tell a friend. And this has been the JB's Low Tech Podcast. JB is my name, and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. Right on. Negro, black, African American, black, black, black. Django. JB. Damn, Dolomite. Great card in heaven, you know. J.B. Our great Negro sex machine.